Hello, and welcome back to How To Be Happy, a podcast where we explore all the ways that we can live a happier life. Each week, we're talking to happiness experts, celebrities, and ordinary people to uncover their secrets to living a good life. My name is Kate DeBrito. I'm your host and guide on this journey into happiness. Let's begin. Have you ever felt like you're the only person thinking or feeling a certain way? Dr. Jen Martin has researched and compiled an amazing list of questions and answers about how we tick that will show you that you're definitely not alone. Everything from why we have a fear of missing out to why multitasking is so hard and ineffective and why holding eye contact is exhausting. Does everyone have more friends than me? And why do I keep putting things off? It's given her a very practical understanding of why we behave the way we do and just how normal we really are, even when we don't feel it. Hello, Jen. Do I call you Dr. Jen? Hi, Kate. Dr. Jen or just uh, Jen? You're, you're very welcome to call me Jen. Okay. All right. Well, we'll, we'll switch between the two just to confuse people. Well, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. You've written an amazing book, Why Am I Like This? The science behind your weirdest and, sorry, what's the other part? The weirdest Your weirdest and, thoughts and habits. Weirdest thoughts and habits. Okay, I've written it down and then yep. can't read my own writing. <laughs> which, is a, which is a great book because I, I just, I did start to think when I was looking through it, we are very strange creatures. And we'll go into some of the, the weird habits in a little minute, but how do you think, just to start off, how do you think understanding the way our brains work can help us to lead happier lives? Well, I think it just helps us to all understand that those little internal worries we have about, oh, am I normal and is this, is, you know, does anyone else feel this way or do this thing or whatever, you know, it just, it just helps us to realise, yes, we are all normal, we all have these quirks and these oddities. You know, I kind of hope the book is a bit of a public service announcement just to say, don't worry, be kind to yourself. You're absolutely normal as you are, just accept it. And and if you're interested in learning a bit more about it, often there are quite interesting interesting, uh, you know, theories and, and there's often very interesting research behind some of these these stories that can explain to us exactly why we do these odd things. So to me, the understanding is really helpful. Well, we tend to think that these quirks and these things that happen to us are unique to us. And the one that mm. I like best is headlined, um, why do I always feel like I'm missing out? Yeah. So is that 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 whole idea around FOMO? That's a, that's an actual thing. Is it a brain quirk? Like, why does that happen? Well, th- think about our evolutionary past. So think about a time when humans lived in. Uh, social groups and we absolutely depended on one another you know we were dividing up tasks to make sure that within our group we had the the healers and the carers and the hunters and the gatherers and you know all these things that we can think of that that humans depend on and it was really important in that social group that people kept tabs on one another and that people knew what was going on and who's well who needs help is everyone safe have people returned you know we really had to to be able to keep track of everybody in our group and so FOMO, I think, really is just the fact that now we still have that desire to uh, to keep in touch and to know what's going on for people. But 
technology, particularly social media, means that we now feel like we can stay in touch with many, 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 many more people than I think we, you know, we were designed to, if you like. And so what that means is that we have this constant sense of missing out, of being other places, being with other people, seeing other things, because we're always exposed to this highlights reel of other people's lives. And of course, we can't possibly be in all those places. So I think FOMO exists aside from social media, but I think social media has really upped the ante on the number of people that we can have some level of interaction with and of course we feel this sense of I want to connect I want to be part of that but we can't and related to that was another one of your chapters which said why does everyone else have more friends than me is that is that (laughs) is that another quirk of our brains that we don't have a um a proper way of of analyzing how many friends we have compared to other people So the research I was writing about in that little chapter came from a primatologist called Robin Dunbar. And many, many years ago, Robin Dunbar proposed that there might be a relationship between the size of a group in a particular primate and the size of a particular part of of a primate's brain. And that's the, the part of the brain called the neocortex. And so Robin went through and kind of plotted the relationship between group size and and size of neocortex. And it came out as this quite nice relationship and suggests that this part of the brain that's responsible for decision making and language might you know the complexity of that part of the brain might allow you to have an increasingly complex social circle when you do that sum for humans it turns out that around 150 is probably about the number of people that we could have some meaningful interaction and connection with that that feels like a lot I don't know if I've got 150 friends is that is that what what does that mean people you'd invite to a party tomorrow or is that just a, a sort of a wider group so, so the more recent research has come out about this is suggests that rather than thinking of Dunbar's number, which is the specific number that comes out from that relationship, that actually we should think about Dunbar's layers, whereby the closest kind of innermost circle of friends here, yeah, you might have two or three or four, if you're lucky, people you could absolutely count on in an emergency. Those are people who no matter what happened, you could call them in the middle of the night and say, I need help. To get to 150, you're going out multiple layers to, to, of kind of acquaintances. So this idea of, you know, do other people have more friends than me? I guess it comes from people, you know, looking at other people's social media uh, platforms, for example, and thinking, my gosh, that person has 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 friends. Why do they have more friends than me? It's a matter of saying, but they're probably not actually friends. They're just acquaintances or maybe even acquaintances of acquaintances. So again, it's this constant comparison that we can fall into thinking that other people are doing things differently to us, maybe better than us. They're probably not. We were never designed from an evolutionary point of view to have thousands and thousands of friends because how would you ever stay in touch with them in any meaningful way at all? I mean, I agree with you, 150 Maybe people in your network that you might share something with, but not people that you would talk with regularly or share personal information with. So, Jen, how did you sort of become interested in this in this area? Like, what 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 brought you to want to write the book? Well, so I'm actually an ecologist by training. So my background is working out in the bush with animals and trying to understand what they do and why they do it. Um, But towards the end of my PhD, I started to realise that the thing I thought was really missing for a lot of science students was learning effective communication skills. So my day job is training science students at the University of Melbourne how to be more effective communicators. But at the same time, I started doing a lot more communicating myself. And so for I think it's like 18, 19 years now, 
now. I've been talking about science on the radio uh, in Melbourne. And so each of these little chapters started as a radio segment, started as me going into the radio studio, um, having an idea of a question that I thought the radio audience would be interested in. And really, I've tried to pick things that I feel like everyone's kind of wondered, you know, why do I stick my tongue out? Why do songs get stuck in my head? Why did I walk into this room and forget what I was doing? All of these things. And then my job as the the scientist is to go and read the literature. So go and actually read the research, find out what's the best evidence we have to answer this question, go into the radio studio and talk about it. And over the years, I've just had lots and lots of feedback that people really want to know what does, you know, what's an old wives tale or an urban myth and what is actually good information, accurate scientific information. And so eventually the the radio stories turned into a book and it's been really fun to take research that can often be quite dense and full of jargon and turn it into something that's accessible for anybody who has an interest, whether they've had any science training or not. One of my favourite chapters was why do I find baby animals so cute? But not just because of that, but because of that Um, you explained why people sometimes feel a a sort of almost a sense of aggression about cute little things. It's like when you see a a little baby with chubby legs, you just want to kind of eat it sort of thing. So can you explain that to people, why that makes people feel just slightly aggressive um, when all they want to do is, you know, kiss and hug that baby or that baby animal? Yeah, so so the reason I got interested in this was because I kind of wondered why is it that we're so addicted to looking at cute things? You know, why are there Instagram accounts that all they do is share photos of cute animals and we look at them? And why are all soft toys kind of built in the same way? Or characters on Pixar movies, you know, these really big eyes, kind of chubby cheeks. You know, on Pixar, it doesn't matter if it's a car or a fish or whatever it is, they kind of have the same face. And, and also I was thinking about how Mickey Mouse has changed. You know, the face of Mickey Mouse is really evolved over time and it turns out that all of these characters are around what research tells us humans are most attracted to and of course those things are what human babies have particularly the big eyes and we are just absolutely driven from an evolutionary point of view to be fixated on things that look like that and to want to care for them and as to why we can get aggressive. It's really interesting. The best understanding we have is that because we are so, so desperate to want to care for this thing, and often we can't care for it because it's not our baby or it's not a baby at all, you know, it's a little cute otter or kitten or something, that desperate want to provide care gets turned into into frustration that we can't because we're so strongly driven. You know, human babies are completely incapable of looking after themselves. It's not like an antelope that, you know, is born and can start walking immediately. So human babies depend on us caring for them, but sometimes if we can't care for them, then we get that sense of frustration. So my favourite my favorite research paper was when they tested, if you're looking at photos of cute baby animals, do you pop more um, bubbles on bubble wrap than you would yes. otherwise? And the answer is yes, because it's like, oh, I just want to, you know, squeeze the bubble wrap. I saw, oh, a, I saw a woman on Instagram the other day talking of cute animals and she had a massive cow with her and she said one of the best things about it is that uh, you know it's so cute but it's got such a big head so you can be really kind of you know aggressive (laughs) with your cuddling and uh and the cow's okay with it so there you go so so that's the answer we need cute really big robust things to cuddle we do so look (laughs) 
bringing it back to happiness because the the interesting part is as you say I think understanding more about your mind and the way it works can help you I think you know decide to live in a in a happier way what do you think mm. what what fact if you could choose one what would be the biggest single difference um, that you could make in in living a happy life? I think for me it's been around understanding that the environment that our brains evolved in and the environment that our brains currently operate in are really, really different. Mm -hmm. And that means that we might behave in ways that we we don't like or we don't want or we find challenging but there's a really good reason why we do that I mean claustrophobia is a really interesting example and I'm not personally claustrophobic so I can't speak directly to it but I do know people who it's hugely debilitating um, you know they've had a traumatic experience getting stuck in a lift or whatever it is and that's now turned into I can't be in a small space I'm like you know I can't do that but and I'm not questioning how difficult that is but from an evolutionary point of view you know it makes sense that we find Find it really stressful to be trapped in a confined space because in many situations that you could imagine that we would have evolved in that would be a really dangerous situation to be in um, things like procrastination you know I procrastinate like the best of people understanding that that's because I've got two parts of my brain that are essentially battling one another the ancient part of my brain which is kind of my inner four-year-old that just wants instant gratification to do whatever feels good right now whatever feels easy whatever's fun that's kind of hardwired into me and to get my prefrontal cortex which is a more recently evolved part of my brain which is more about planning and decision making and being responsible to get that part of my brain to to override the inner four-year-old you know that's actually quite hard and I have to put things in place to make sure that I understand why this thing is important I feel some sense of connection to the task you know for me just having that sense of acceptance of myself and rather than getting really cross with myself and not doing what I might think is the right thing to do just being a bit kinder to myself and saying well there's a reason that you're procrastinating or a reason that you feel this way um, and let's you know let's be curious and try and understand what that reason is and then think about ways that I can get my my brain to switch into a different operating mode I guess I, I find that really interesting and helpful. It feels like that's becoming even more um, pressing that need to understand you know the speeds with with which our brains work especially these days when we're being you know it's it's been such a rapid development of, of digital technology for example that we yep. uh, uh, you know we get so much information so quickly surely our brains have not caught up um, in terms of evolution to the amount of information we're getting yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the stories in the book is about why is it that I can walk into a room and suddenly have absolutely no recollection of why I did it. Mm. And that's kind of partly what you just talked about. So our best understanding of the way our memories work is that our brains are constantly overloaded with a lot of information and we simply can't have access to all of that information at all the time. You know, some of it can't be in the most easily accessed part of our memories. So our brain has developed a, a way of identifying kind of different events or different episodes and saying, you know, that's probably not relevant now. I don't need that. Now, through some just really weird quirk, it turns out that research shows us really clearly that the act of walking through a doorway, our brains take as a signal to say, oh, you're in a new situation now. 
don't worry so much about the information before. It's probably not really relevant. You actually need a whole lot of kind of, you know, (laughs) brain resources, cognitive resources to be ready for what's next. And so here we are living in a world where, you know, we never would have had to have doorways before. And now you walk through a door and all of a sudden you're like, oh, my gosh, I just have no recollection of what I'm here. It's so helpful to me because like many people, (laughs) there are so many times where I think, okay, I'll go upstairs and just, I just need to grab my headphones before before I head to the gym and I walk through yep. a doorway and I yep. come back downstairs without my headphones and I've come back upstairs to get them <laughs> and return without them again. It's like the, the magic doorway is preventing yeah. me from remembering what I'm supposed to be so, there for. So I think the answer just has to be open plan living, right? <laughs> the fewer doorways, the better. Okay, well, talk to me a little bit about time because you've got a really interesting chapter about time. About uh, Obviously, people think time is this sort of rigid, we've got 24 hours in a day, 365 days in a year. But time actually does change, um, you know, based on our perception of it. Can you explain about how we yeah, can take absolutely. a bit more control over our time? Yeah, so I guess the first thing to know is that uh, if you are an incredibly busy person and you're packing lots and lots into your days, you are going to feel like time is just slipping through your fingers. It's very clear that unless we can have some downtime and some time to just be still for a moment, um, have a bit of silence, uh, ideally be in nature, you know, unless we're going to take those breaks, then our days are just going to disappear in a flash because we have no, you know, no time. But one of the topics that I really wanted to look into is, is why do we feel like time passes more quickly as we get older? And that is true of people in all different cultures. I think that really busy, busy, busy thing is much more true of Western cultures. But people have been researching for a very long time because it's been a known fact that as we get older, it feels like time passes more quickly. And there's a few different theories to think about that. One of them is fairly simple. It's called the proportionality theory. And that just says that if you're thinking about a year, as a block of time, if you're four years old, then a year is a whole quarter of your life. So it feels like a lot. Whereas if you're 40, you know, it's a 40th of your life. So no wonder it feels smaller. And and I think that's probably part of it. But one of the other theories that really makes sense to me is that when we're young, we do a lot of things for the first time. You know, we have a lot of new experiences and research shows that when you experience something for the first time, you form quite dense, rich memories associated with that. You know, there's a lot of things you remember about it because you've never done it before. And so if you have a period of time full of these really rich memories, when you look back over it, you have a sense that 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 took a long time Mm. for that time to pass because there was so much happening. Fast forward, for most of us as adults, we have much more predictable lives. Mm. You know, we have routines. We go to the gym whatever morning of the week. Some of us take children to school or we care for other people in our lives. We go to work. You know, we don't tend to do nearly as many new things. And so we don't end up with that same richness of and diversity of memories. So when we look back over it, we say, well, that was kind of no time at all because I don't have any really defining memories about that time. And for me, COVID was a really good example of that because anyone who lived through lockdowns 
at the time the days felt really long and slow because there wasn't much going on and we couldn't do a lot of the normal things we do but for me anyway who lived through you know all of Melbourne's lockdowns I look back and it's just kind of two years just disappeared in a flash I don't have a lot of distinct memories of that time because there just wasn't a lot of different things going on so that to me that makes a lot of sense and and it means that if we want to take more control over our time one of the key things to do is to make sure we are doing more new things because when we do new things that turns into then you know more detailed memories and then when we look back we feel like that took longer to happen so I think we should just all go on holidays more because (laughs) when you go on holiday you know two weeks on holiday feels very different to two weeks at home in your normal routine totally different yeah so act like a child bring a bit of childlike sort of wonder into your world it is true like children you know you you see them and they're if you had children yourself or you know they're walking along and they see a dog and they're like there's a dog and they're so excited yeah, and yeah. everything's so interesting the first time they jump along a fence you know walking along to get to school this is like the most amazing thing and we're like you know hurry up let's get moving yeah yeah look and and I've got teenagers now and even for them you know they still often do new things mm. you know there's things that they've never done before whereas for me I have to be really conscious about deciding to do new things um, and I'm actually doing that as a challenge this year with some friends we're trying to do a new thing every week every week so that we, okay can you yeah, give, well, give me some examples what kind of things well, there's a whole group of us turning 50 this year, okay. so we're using the hashtag 50 for 50, which I think is something people have done all over like the world. That. So the idea is every week you come up with something new to do that you haven't done before. And what um, would be an example? Because obviously you're not going to be a trip away every week or, a, a, you know, you're not going to learn to scuba dive or something every week, or maybe you are, <laughs> but like what sort of things would you do? Uh, well, in my first week, I so this is I'm only into like week five or something. My first week, I went on a roller coaster five times back to back. Oh. Never done that before. Wow. That was pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, I did lawn bowls, like barefoot bowls, for the first time that I'd never done before. Um, I'm a park runner, so I visited a different park run that I hadn't been to before. Last week, I feel like I cheated a bit. I'm like last week, I've never published a book in Australia before, <laughs> so that's my new thing for last week. That was good. Um, but it can be little things, you know, cooking a new recipe. Mm. Do it just it's just that kind of sense of um, I'm going to be curious about my own life and see where there are opportunities that I could do something that I haven't done before and, and I'm not expecting them all to be big things by any means I'm, I'm thinking some of them will be quite little things but just things I wouldn't do otherwise how, so we'll see whether I have more memories at the end of this year how many friends <laughs> are, are taking part in in this in this challenge Ah, oh, there's a few of us. I think maybe six or seven, something like okay. that. We've got a spreadsheet. Right. Everyone's, everyone's planning. Everyone's you know, had to come up with a, their events. Everyone's had to. Does everyone do everyone else's activities? Is that how it works? No, you just get to pick your own. Okay. You get just get to pick what you would like to do. Okay. Um, but we're all sharing what we're doing so that you can see if there's any ideas you want to steal. You know, if you've got a week that you're not feeling inspired, I think, <laughs> what did somebody else do? I might have a look. I think that's a great idea. Um, one of the other things you were also talking about was uh, in, in, in the book, a chapter was about why does silence calm me? And mm. I mean, that, that might seem obvious. Obviously, the clanging of symbols is not very calming. But can you tell us a little bit more about why people can benefit from um, silence or bringing a bit of silence into their life? Yeah, I really like this topic because it showed the power of research when sometimes you find things that you're not really expecting. So 
we know quite a lot about noise pollution. We know that a lot of people aren't as fortunate as most of us in Australia to live in places where we have access to quiet. So we know that there are people all around the world who live in places where there is a lot of noise and that can be very harmful to their health. So noise is kind of one part of the story. But the actual research that I looked into was where people were interested in how different genres of music affected both humans and in in the case of one study, mice. So the idea was that they um, played two minutes of a particular type of music and then had a break and then played two minutes of another particular type of music. (coughs) Sorry, I hope you can edit out the coughs one second. That's okay. And... So in both cases, whether it was humans or mice, the researchers were monitoring, um, you know, blood pressure, heart rate, all sorts of physiological things to see how people and and the mice responded to different types of music. And uh, as you would expect, people did respond differently to different types of music. You know, the beat, the melody, it all had an impact. But in both cases, what the researchers found, which they hadn't even set out to look for, was that the two minutes of silence between the different music tracks, which needed to be there to make sure people could kind of reset after listening to, you know, heavy metal or classical or whatever it was, it was the two minutes of silence that actually had the biggest impact by far (coughs) on people's physiology. So when people or mice got to have silence, all of a sudden their heart rate slowed down, their blood pressure dropped, their brain activity completely changed and it had this huge impact on them. The evidence among the mice was that the mice were even forming new brain cells in, in one part of their brain, the part of their brain responsible for memory and emotions. Jen, I don't want, so, I don't want you to, ch- yeah, to choke to death. No, don't apologise. <laughs> Do you <laughs> want to take, just, a, sec- just take a second and, and have, a glass, have a glass of water? It's just so weird. I don't know why I'm so, like, I don't have a cold. I'm healthy. I just don't know why I'm suddenly going weird. I think I've just been talking too much. You might have been talking a lot. You are out on the hustings with a new book, a, f- a first for you, a first book published in Australia. So it's understandable that you're probably yeah, it's a bit weird. feeling a little bit like that. Uh, anyway, do you want me to go back a bit because no, my voice was a bit funny that, there for a second? That, All good? No, that's okay. I think that's, that's fine. I just, uh, I guess, you know, it, it does interest me that these insights, um, as I said, can give you a little bit of um, power over, uh, you know, awareness is everything, right? So if you have an awareness. Absolutely. One of the other areas that I thought was interesting was around um, you talked about flow um, in in work and how people can can find that flow. Is, is there anything you can tell us about that, about how people can get more into the flow in that sort of feeling of, They've lost themselves in their work. Yeah, I mean, being whether you call it being in the groove or um, in the zone or in flow, I think, well, hopefully many of us have had that experience, which is just that sense of kind of being fully immersed in something, losing track of time, just being completely absorbed by what we're doing. And there's been a lot of research into it, unsurprisingly, because it just, you know, it's such a great way to be productive and to feel positive. And what we know is that the key balance is around how difficult a task is. Mm. So if you're doing a task that's very, very easy for you, you tend to just get a bit bored, you know, you're not really engrossed in it, you're just kind of smashing it out. If you're doing a task that you find really difficult, 
then you know in contrast you're you're grappling all the time you're you're trying to work out how to do it you probably have some negative thoughts around this is too hard I don't know how to do this so flow comes when you're doing a task that is interesting enough for you to be fully engrossed in it but not so hard that you're dealing with all those negative emotions and when you're in flow you just feel like things are easy I mean athletes talk about being in flow you know going out for a run and it just feels like they're flying musicians talk about it quite a lot Um, and so it's a matter of getting to that stage where our brains can kind of switch off some of those higher order things one second So, you know, if you're doing a task and you don't really need sort of reasoning and higher order decision making, those parts of your brain get to switch off. And that means that you're less likely to kind of be self-monitoring and self-critical and you can become much more creative. And there were some really nice studies looking at jazz musicians who are improvising and looking at what's going on in their brains. And you might imagine that an improvising jazz musician is having to really think Mm. quite hard about oh my gosh what am I going to play next and you know as a non-jazz improvisation music you know musician it sounds quite stressful to me but instead a jazz musician who's really in the flow of improvisation a whole part of their brain is just completely switched off and instead they're in this state of flow where they're not inhibited they're not self-censoring um, they're just able to express themselves in a really beautiful way and the brain waves themselves are changing so but why when it's why when it's is it important that it's a that it's a difficult task or that it's not so difficult that you you know are struggling but that it's difficult why do you think it's it happens then rather than when something's really easy it, it doesn't have to be difficult. It just has to be not, well, it just has to be in that kind of that sweet spot, that Goldilocks zone. You know, if it's really, really, really easy, you'll probably be bored. If it's really, really hard, you'll be stressed and, and anxious and constantly checking, am I doing this right? I don't know how to do this. So it's just got to be in that sweet spot in the middle that you're engrossed in the task, mm. you're thinking about it, but not to the extent that you have to be really constantly kind of worrying about whether you're doing it well or not. And I think you know, when you can get to that point where your blood pressure drops, your you know, you relax, your heart rate slow down and you're just doing the thing, you know, maybe it's sewing, maybe it's playing chess, maybe it's playing a sport, whatever it is, getting to that point is really very rewarding and very productive. So I think for all of us trying to think back to has there ever been a time that we've experienced that flow and can we analyse for ourselves what was it about that thing mm. that got us to that place and, and can we kind of repeat well, it? Well, that's you what know, I wonder. Is get that again? Is something you can control or do people say that it really is, um, you know, it, it takes you by surprise, you just you didn't realise it just suddenly was there or is it something people can create for themselves? I think it's something you can create for yourself, but it requires some discipline around, for example, not having your phone beside you, Mm. not responding to notifications, being prepared to engage in some actual deep work Mm. because the only way we can get into flow is if we are really immersed and and engrossed by whatever we're doing Mm. Um, and if we're constantly getting distracted by other things. So there's another chapter in the book about multitasking Mm. and what a total fallacy that is. Um, You know, those researchers suggest that people who are writing, so writing being a very good example of a situation in which you can get into a flow state, if you're writing but every time an email comes in, you're checking what that email is, research showed that it takes people on average 23 minutes to get back into a state where they're writing productively, whatever their original task was. 
And some people never get back there. So, you know, we have to commit. I'm not saying that everyone can suddenly find themselves in flow every day, but there's definitely some things we can do to make it easier, which largely is deciding to to get rid of distractions, whatever you need to do. And obviously that's not possible if you've got children or parents or, or pets who need you. But, you know, we have to get to the point that we can craft some of that really concentrated time for ourselves. It is interesting, isn't it? Because um, that whole idea of, uh, of multitasking has been sort of something that people almost aim for or, or, or strive to be able to multitask. But you're saying that yep. it's, it's not actually that effective. No, we know absolutely that multitasking is not effective at all unless you belong to 2% of the population who are called supertaskers. So there are people out there who the more tasks they are asked to do simultaneously. So the research involved things like um, doing a driving test while having memory tests thrown at you on the phone while doing mathematics, you know, while doing maths problems. 2% of the population, actually, the more they do, the better they get at it. But of course, the irony is that most of us go, oh, yeah, that must be me. I'm really good at multitasking. Mm -hmm. But research suggests that the people who think they are the best, the people who are most confident in their multitasking abilities tend to be the ones who are worse (laughs) at it. So unless you're in that 2%, chances are that you are really, really terrible at multitasking. And we shouldn't even call it multitasking. We should call it task switching Mm -hmm. because all we're doing is constantly switching between two tasks and we think you lose about 40% of your productivity yeah. when you try and multitask. I, I, I try to stop myself when I recognise it because I do. I find that I'm just the time or the, the effort is just leeching away somewhere. I watched another great video the other day, Jen, and it was a, I think the guy was a, a, a cook. He, he done it, made a cookbook and he got his dad to yeah, cool. um, cook one of his recipes. But the, the kicker was his dad was an engineer. So his dad wasn't a cook, ah. but he approached the whole job in this sort of very practical and meticulous manner that you would expect of, from an engineer, very thoughtful, yeah. <laughs> very deliberate, um, very organised and not multitasking at all. And the result, like straight off the bat, was just this beautiful, you know, perfectly formed dish um, yep. that he created yeah. because he'd followed the recipe and he hadn't got distracted and he hadn't done a million things so I yeah I think it's really yeah it's really worth remembering that and and I think the thing for me is recognizing that even things that I feel I can do really easily together for example you know I'm walking down the street I'm walking to the train station and I'm talking to a friend on the phone I could easily walk and talk at the same time that's not difficult but There was this great research study where they said, okay, but how much are you able to maintain awareness of what's around Mm. you if you're doing those two things at once? Um, And only one quarter of the people in this study noticed that there was a clown that rode past them on a unicycle (laughs) who'd been planted there by the researchers because the other three quarters of people were too immersed in talking and walking at the same time and they didn't even notice the clown or the unicycle. So, you know, as soon as we do multiple things at once, even if we think it's easy, it absolutely uh, prevents us from from being aware of other things. Well, I mean, obviously, the worse than talking on the phone is is looking at your phone, and and we're all guilty of that at some point. But you know, just walk yep. down the street, and people have their eyes um, on their phones. Which, as I said, I I don't want to be a hypocrite about it because I'm sure that when I need to look at my phone, I, I do. But yeah, but what yeah, we but all what do. worries me is the amount of people who they obviously look up at a crossing, they check that there's no one you know, about to mow them down. And then they just, they watch their phone as they cross the road. And yep. I think, 
I don't know, probably just might keep your attention on the road for a couple more seconds. Yeah, 100%. You know, you don't know if someone's just had a stroke in the car or if their brakes have failed. You know, I think keeping our wits about us. But I'm with you also. I, I don't want to be hypocritical. There's absolutely been times. I'm like, oh, I just quickly need to check this. <laughs> always, always quickly. So yeah. can, for, for people at home, what, what are three things that, you know, in your in your years of sort of researching these quirks and these different interesting aspects about human behaviour, what are three things you think people could um, take note of or, or do differently um, to help create a happier life? So I definitely think carving out some time for silence and, and ideally if that time can be in nature, I think that makes a really, really big difference. There's very clear research to show that, yeah, if we can just decide we want to have a bit of silent time and be very deliberate about not having distractions around us, not having the phone nearby, all that sort of thing. You know, if some sort of guided relaxation helps, great. But if you just want to sit quietly under a tree, um, I really think that that is something that we can all do. It's ideally free, you know, if you live somewhere where you can get somewhere quiet. Jen, can I in- um, interrupt you for one minute before you go on to the other course. two? Because you do actually talk about, we, we didn't mention this when you talked about silence, is that people really struggle to be silent Mm. don't they what was the research about people who would um they would prefer to have an electric shock rather than (laughs) sit by themselves in silence is this the reason for human suffering the fact that we can't just sit in silence yeah, it's a pretty shocking study, isn't it? So people were asked, they were they were told for up to 15 minutes, you need to sit in this chair, you can't fall asleep, you can't do anything else, you just need to sit quietly. Um, people did it, but then when they were asked later, you know, how did that feel? Most people said that was really hard, I actually really struggled. So the second step of the research was to say, okay, here's this mild electric shock. People experienced that. And when the researchers asked them what that was like, they said that wasn't very nice to the extent that when they were asked, would you pay to avoid experiencing that electric shock again. Most people, I think it was about three quarters, said, yes, I would, I don't, you know, I I would pay to not have that again. Yet when they repeated the experiment and asked people to sit in this room quietly on their own, you have to stay awake, um, two thirds of men and a quarter of women chose to give themselves an electric shock (laughs) rather than just deal with the complete boredom that happens by just sitting there. And, you know, on average, I think people just gave themselves one or two shocks just to kind of go, oh, I'll just see if this actually works or whatever. Um, But there was one guy who gave himself 190 electric shocks. Presumably because, I mean, I I feel like I've got to be careful here, right? Because if you're dealing with mental health challenges, if you've had trauma, then I can imagine that being left to your own devices and your own thoughts might be very difficult. So absolutely no judgment. But for those of us, you know, privileged enough to not be dealing with immense trauma, and in this situation, of course, they weren't asking traumatised people to sit on their own. You know, for those of us who just like being distracted all the time, it's pretty damning (laughs) to think that we would prefer to give ourselves a painful electric shock rather than just be be at a you know be with our own thoughts so and daydream it, and just kind of sit there it seems like good advice to say to people like go out in nature because that's an easier way to be silent but if you weren't able to yep. do that what would be your advice for people to get silent because I know people who say like I couldn't meditate I can't sit down I can't just go into a room and sit still are there other ways yep. they can breathe and get a little bit of silence in their life you know without sitting down on a cushion you know in a, in a quiet room Yeah, absolutely. I mean, go for a walk, even if it's just walking around your house. I mean, anything, uh, you know, I don't believe in telling people what they should do. I hate the word should. 
But if there's something that feels comfortable and safe to you and ideally pleasurable to you that allows you to have some peace and quiet. But I think it's also a lot about being deliberate and intentional about it. You know, I can fall into the trap that every minute of every day I'm either listening to people speaking or I'm speaking or, you know, I'm listening to a podcast or an audio book, I'm with my kids, you know, whatever it is. Me being really intentional and saying, you know what, actually, I'm just going to sit here or walk for 10 minutes and not have earbuds in, not talk to anybody. And the research suggests that being intentional is really, really important. You know, if you're forced under duress to be silent, it's much less likely to help you calm down and to feel at ease than if you're doing it because, you know, somebody's told you to do it. You know, making that choice, I think, is really important. Yeah, I guess it could just be a decision, couldn't it? You're picking up the kids, maybe you're in your car rather than sort of, um, you've arrived a few minutes early rather than jumping on your phone or turning up the radio maybe it's just having a few minutes of quiet um, if yeah spaces yeah. in the day and now I didn't interrupt yeah, you what, sure. what another two another two things you think people could do uh, I guess the other one is just to really keep tabs on this whole kind of FOMO thing and just recognising that humans weren't designed to be connected with hundreds or even thousands of other people and that when we compare ourselves to what we're seeing and other people's kind of highlight reels on social media, we're absolutely setting ourselves up to feel inadequate or to feel like we wish we had something different than we do. So just reminding ourselves that, you know, it's wonderful. I, I love being connected to a lot of people. I'm very extroverted. I get so much joy from being connected with other people. But just reminding myself that I didn't evolve in a situation where I was meant to be feeling constantly connected to thousands of other people. You know, my my group of, of close connections, had I, you know, lived however many centuries or thousands of years ago, would have been much smaller. So I think just, you know, kind of calming it down a bit, I think is really helpful. I thought one of the other ones, and I know we don't have too much more time, but I just did think it was really interesting. It was about imposter syndrome. And most people have heard of imposter syndrome. But yeah, I think that's interesting because people don't think that other people feel the same way. They think everyone else is out there feeling really confident and they've got it all sorted out, but they're the only one feeling I don't have it all together. When are people going to discover that, you know, I'm a fraud? Is this something that most people feel at some time or another? Absolutely. And you've beautifully segued into what was going to be my third thing. My third thing was that if you ever have those self-doubts of I'm not good enough or everyone else is smarter than me or better than me or whatever it is, just to know that that is absolutely normal. Most people feel like imposters at some time. And the actual researchers who coined that phrase, um, the imposter syndrome, came out later and said they wish they'd never called it that because syndrome suggests that it's, you know, that it's a mental health condition, that it's a disorder, that something's wrong with you. Um, And they said they wish they'd called it the imposter experience to recognise that in its experience it's very, very, very common to people. And, And interestingly, you know, we kind of think for those of us who are who are working and in careers that, you know, the more senior we get, the more confident and competent we should become. But the research actually suggests the opposite, that as you move through your career and you advance, you're actually probably more likely being asked to do new things all the time that you've never done before. And so you're even more likely to experience these feelings of doubt of not knowing how to do things because you haven't done them before. So, yeah, my third tip would just be to recognise that, that if you are feeling like an imposter, know that 
that it's incredibly common. It was first described in women, but we know that men are just as likely to experience it. Incredibly common to have those feelings of doubt and inadequacy. And one of the best things we can do is talk about it with people because by normalising it and realising that everyone just kind of feels like they're winging it (laughs) and really hoping that they can kind of get away with it, as soon as you realise that kind of everyone feels that to some extent, I don't know, I just think you can be a bit kinder to yourself about it and say, oh, well, this is just me doubting myself again and and a really good way of reframing it. A very dear friend of mine reframes it in such a helpful way. Her take on it is if I'm not feeling like an imposter, then it probably means I'm just settling into doing boring, repetitive things all the time and I need to feel like an imposter because it shows me that I'm challenging myself to learn and grow and develop and try new things. And so I try and channel that thinking when I'm feeling very doubtful about my own abilities. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a switch, but it's quite helpful. I like that. It's a really good reframe for an uncomfortable feeling. So, Jen, people can hear you. um, where, Where can they listen to you? You've got your own podcast. Yeah, so the podcast probably won't be relevant to a lot of people. Our podcast is helping scientists to be more effective communicators. So that may or may not be relevant. We talk to all sorts of amazing scientists. That's called Let's Talk SciComm. And then if you know of 3RRR, it's Australia's largest community radio station. Um, I'm on RRRR um, on Wednesday mornings talking with the breakfasters about science. And then once a month I co-host a science show on Sundays as well. Um, okay, wonderful. Yeah, I'll I'd, put that I'd in just... the show notes so people can find it if they want. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Jen. It's really, really fascinating and it's a great book. Why am I like this? The science behind your weirdest thoughts and habits. Now, you've also got some, there's some great illustrations. Do you want to tell us quickly about your illustrator? Is it Holly? Yeah, Holly Jolly is just this incredible illustrator and I'm just so delighted that the publishers approached Holly and said, would you like to illustrate this book? Because they're just absolutely gorgeous. So this book, there's also a German edition and a, and a US edition and all three have different covers and I can't decide which one I like best because her illustrations are just all so fabulous. So yeah, I'm very grateful to Holly for making, you know, a book about science into something that a lot of people have told me. They, they just like to have it on their coffee table. They pick it up, they read a chapter, they put it down down again kids like it you know teenagers like yeah. it because it's easy to read um yeah I'm super grateful to Holly her work is beautiful well, congratulations Jen uh, well done thank well you done your book and on ticking off another uh first for this year new thing, new thing. What's, uh, <laughs> what's on the agenda for next week Oh, I haven't decided yet. I'm trying to not plan too much in advance because then I feel like you don't kind of get that thrill of the spontaneity okay. of, oh, what new thing am I going to do this week? So I've got a few things locked in, like some some big running events and things that I haven't done before. Okay. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to keep a bit of spontaneity, so I'll, I'll have to see what comes okay. up. Okay. All right. Well, good luck with that too. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, and best of luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you so much for making time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. 